take your Bibles, let's turn to Revelation chapter, chapter 3. We are moving our way through the book of Revelation. We come to the the fifth of uh, seven letters to churches in the book of Revelation, which began with uh, a letter to the church at Ephesus, and then Smyrna, and then Pergamum, and Thyatira, and then Sardis. Next week we'll look at the letter to the church in Philadelphia, and then the letter to the church in Laodicea. Each one of these letters has some common themes to it. They all have a description of the Lord Jesus. They all have um, a, either a commendation or a rebuke. Some have both. The letter to the church in Sardis is uh, one of the two unusual letters. The letter to Sardis and the letter to Laodicea, there is no commendation for these churches. These churches existed on a, on, on a sort of spectrum. Smyrna really, I think, begins the list in terms of faithfulness. They're small. It's a brief letter. Jesus says to them, I know what you're suffering. I know you're struggling. More is coming. You need to hang on. You need to trust me in faith. And uh, eternity is coming. After that, I would say that the, uh, the letter to Philadelphia, which we haven't gotten to yet, but it's a, it's a very similar letter. letter. Jesus says, I know where you are. I know you're dealing with a lot of struggling. I want you to hang on in faith. With the letter to Ephesus, we, we start getting into some correction and, and start getting into some rebuke. They're doctrinally pure. They've got the right answers. They really do, and that's, that is uh, praiseworthy. Jesus praises them for that. But they've lost their passion for Jesus himself. They've forgotten about Jesus himself. The risk of doing that is, is that in a city like Ephesus, where you have temples to Diana or Artemis, you have temples to Zeus, is that you, you simply take Jesus and put him statically in the temple of Zeus or the temple of Diana, and you treat him as some kind of an idol. Remember, the, the big difference between biblical faith, Christian faith, and the rest of the the, the ancient religions of the world is the belief that God is real, not some dead thing, not some idol made with human hands or by human imagination. That's true today, by the way. When, when religions today create God in their own image, they may as well carve it out of wood or stone. It's equally dead. Well, the church at Ephesus has got the right doctrine, but they've forgotten that Jesus is alive, and so he warns them on that. The church in, in Pergamum is a church that maybe has gone to the next step. Their doctrine is sound. Their own personal faith is there, but they're tolerating false teachers. For whatever reason, maybe they're too embarrassed to speak up. Maybe, uh, like in our time, they've been told that the, the dominant trait of a true Christian is being nice. That's never the dominant trait of a true Christian. It's being true to the Lord Jesus. For whatever reason... He says to the church in Pergamum, you need to repent. You need to deal with these false teachers. You need to confront them. You need to correct them. Or else Jesus says, I'm going to come and deal with them myself. In the Old Testament, when 
the Lord was giving his, his law to uh, the, the Jews in the wilderness in the book of Leviticus, he says, when you have a person in your midst like this person, you deal with them. You punish them according to the law. Or when I come, I'll deal with them and their family and the pollution that they've spread. It's always better if we take steps. Well, the church at Thyatira may have been a church at one time like Pergamum, where false teachers came in and the rest of the church was doing okay and they just thought they're marginal, they're not a huge part of the belief system here, nobody's really going after that, just just leave it alone, just be polite. But in Thyatira, the false teachers have taken over. There's either an individual there named Jezebel, or call, he calls Jezebel, or there's a cultic system that he refers to as Jezebel. But whatever it is, he says, I'm bringing judgment against her, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and mind. He says to the rest of you in Thyatira who don't hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. In other words, you keep being faithful, but you can't deal with them anymore. It's too far gone for that. That that false element within the church is now taken over and you can't deal with them. When we come to the church in Sardis, we've, we've come the next degree. Let's see what he says here. Verse 1 of chapter 3, To the angel of the church of Sardis, this is Jesus dictating to John, by the way, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So in this description of Jesus, he's described as having the seven spirits of, of God and uh, the, the seven stars. Uh, if you go to our website, uh, onehopefellowshipnorfolk.org.com.org.something, you can, you can listen to the messages in chapter 1 where, where we go through some of the, the symbolism used of the Lord Jesus. I don't have time to do it now. Let me say this, the seven spirits are a reference to the Holy Spirit. He takes us back to Zechariah chapter 4 where the Spirit of God is described as seven lamps and seven eyes, illuminating everything, seeing everything, witnessing everything. In John chapter 13 to 16 in the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus' final teaching to his disciples, he, he, uh, five times he, he speaks to the identity and the work of the Holy Spirit. He says the Spirit is the Spirit of truth who dwells in believers. He says the Spirit is the helper who teaches us everything and who brings everything Jesus said to our remembrance. He says the Spirit is the one who bears witness of Jesus. He says the Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. It's the Spirit who guides us into all truth, he says, because the Spirit does not speak on his own authority, but rather declares to the church through the apostles and prophets what has been given to him by the Father and by the Son. So when Jesus says that he's got the, the Spirit in his hand, he's making reference to the fact of the work of the Spirit in the church, reference to the fact that Jesus and the Father send the Spirit to do the work that the Spirit does. It's important in a church like Sardis that they understand that Jesus comes with absolute knowledge and absolute authority and that there is power to change. There's power for transformation. He also says that he has the, uh, the, the angels, or the seven stars. The seven stars, it says in chapter 1, are the angels of the churches. We talked about that at greater length. These are the pastors of the churches and the elders of the churches. These are those who are there as messengers of God, responsible for bringing the word of God to the body of Christ. The word was given through the apostles and prophets. 
Jesus himself is the author. Ephesians 4 says that God gave apostles and prophets to the church as a foundational ministry and that evangelists and pastor teachers then apply the word of God to unbelievers. Pastor teachers apply the word of God to the saints. So we've got this description of Jesus where he has full authority over the Holy Spirit, sends the Holy Spirit where he wills, speaks to the Holy Spirit what he wills, and the Holy Spirit reveals everything and nothing but what Jesus wants. And he has the authority over the teaching of the church. And so he says to this church, and we're going to see their state, but he says to this church, the power of transformation and the source of transformation through the word of God are in my control. I have those things. I can withhold them. I can give them. So, let me just nail this down. Those who ignore me are just ignoring me. I'm just a guy. I'm just a man. But when I proclaim the word, now you're not ignoring me anymore. Now you're ignoring the word. And it's not because of any inherent authority or power or knowledge or worth that I have, it's because what is to come out of my mouth in these moments is the Word of God. Rightly, rightly understood, rightly divided, presented clearly and simply. None of us are free to ignore the Word of God. You're free to ignore me. Go for it. And if I get it wrong, please ignore me. But to the extent that I, that I get it right, the very fact that I've spent the hours this week Studying this text makes me accountable for it, to live it and to proclaim it. And the fact that you're here now hearing it makes you accountable for what you hear. This is a dangerous time. There was a woman once who said, everybody goes to Easter services at church wearing bonnets. If they understood who God really was, they'd be wearing crash helmets because this is a dangerous time. It can be a transformative time. Jesus brings a rebuke to the church right off the bat. Verses 1 through 3, he says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. And we've already seen that with the, the letters to Ephesus and Thyatira, and then we'll see next week in the, letters to, in the letter to Philadelphia, that Jesus says, I know your works, and he means it in a, in a positive sense. But to Sardis and to the church in Laodicea, when he says, I know your works, it's not positive. They think that they're hiding. They think that they're getting away with something. He says you have... The reputation of being alive, more literally, you have the name of being alive. You have the name of life. You've claimed that. And yet you're dead. Why are they dead? Because their works are not complete in Christ. And so he says you need to wake up. You need to strengthen what remains and is about to die. You need to remember what you received and heard. You need to keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, obviously I will come like a thief, he says, and you will not know at what hour. What works? He just says works. Your works are not complete. And he doesn't tell us in this letter what works. But these letters are written 
primarily to the church that received them and then to all the churches. And so we can look at the other letters and see. Uh, Jesus says to the Ephesians that they were marked by toil and long-suffering and faithfulness to the truth, steadfastness, they hated false doctrine, they hated false religion. He says to those in Smyrna that they have held on to Christ, even when doing so meant genuine suffering. He says to those in Pergamum that they're to hold fast to the name of Jesus and that they have not denied the faith, even when Antipas, who might have been the pastor of the church, was executed for his faith. Those in Thyatira, even as many problems as there were there. The faithful ones in Thyatira were marked by their love for the Lord and others, by their faith, by their service, by their long-suffering. The church in Philadelphia is marked by keeping Jesus' word in spite of suffering. So those are the works that we see that are faithful in these seven letters. And he says the church in Sardis, you started out as though those things were going to be real, but then you abandoned them. You walked away. They've become complacent. They've become apathetic toward the things that they have received. There's just a small amount remaining. And that small amount remaining is is weak. And so what this means is they've apostatized. The Greek word that we translate the Greek word apostasy literally means without faith. But it has to do with defiance against authority, against the authority of the Lord. Similar words are translated abandonment and divorce and renunciation, and forsaking something. So the fact that they've apostatized means that they've abandoned the Lord. They've forsaken the Lord. They've sued for divorce. They want to be separated from Him. Persecution causes some to fall away. Prosperity causes others to turn away. Whatever the reason... This church has defied the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. They've abandoned Him. They've sued for divorce. They've renounced Him. They've forsaken Him. They're in a bad place. They're in a bad place. So Jesus gives them a very clear warning. Wake up. Be vigilant. Be diligent. Stir yourself to alertness. This word wake up literally uh, could also be translated be watchful. It's my name. It's Gregory. That's the word watch. If you believe that names have meaning, my name Gregory, and those of you who know me, those of you who have encountered me, know that I'm always watching. And I'm shouting out warnings when there's a need to shout out a warning. I don't always do that well. You, you, you want a, an, an uncomfortable warning about the truth, or do you want a polite, uh, just ignore it? Pray for me that I learn how to communicate better. But pray for me that I never start, stop warning. He tells them you need to watch. You need to wake up. He says, little remains of your original faithfulness. What does remain is weak and pathetic, so you need to strengthen it. Strengthen what remains. There's just a little bit left. He says, you need to remember what you have heard and received, what you have received and heard. That's the gospel. Remember the gospel that you received and heard. Remember the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember his blood. Call it to mind. Make it the center of your attention again. Make it the focus of your attention. He says, keep it, obey it, 
Observe it. Embrace it. Trust it. Set your feet on it and and keep your feet there. And he says you need to repent. You need to turn away from your rebellion and your faithfulness and turn back to the Savior, the head of the church. You've got a, a church that I'm sure at this point, a congregation that may not have been much bigger than this, might have been a little bit bigger. And I'm sure that there are, among the three groups of people there, there, there are some who are really angry at what they're hearing. There are some who are deeply relieved. We're going to talk about them in a moment. And there are some that are really beginning to sweat. What happens if they ignored the word that's been given to them in this letter? Jesus says, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That's a good description of Sardis. They're asleep. They're apathetic. What they have is shrunken and become very weak. And Jesus says, I will come to you as a thief. A thief comes to take things. The picture of a thief is, is coming unexpectedly, suddenly, to take things. What is Jesus going to take? He's going to take the little that they have. They have one opportunity. They don't, they don't have six months to contemplate this message and meditate on it and pray through it. He's calling for immediate action. They may not disband as a congregation. They may continue to call themselves as a church, but they will be an empty shell. They'll just be a lifeless corpse. It's a serious warning. Nevertheless, it's, it's followed by some hope and comfort in verse 4. He says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are unworthy. Why has Jesus tolerated the church in Sardis as long as he has? Well, we know he's patient. We know he's kind. We know he's merciful. We know he's giving opportunity for the believers there or for the church there at large, to take these things seriously and to repent. God gives so many opportunities for repentance. In my reading this morning in in Leviticus, uh, I I came through a section, it was a chapter, a little bit less, on, on how God will bless them for their faithfulness. And then after that, then he says, and if you are not faithful, if you are disobedient, I'm going to do this. And if you don't turn, I'm going to do this. And if you don't turn, I'm going to do this. And if you don't turn, I'm going to do this. And I think it goes on two chapters. And I mean, the this and this and this and this is pretty bad stuff. It's pretty miserable stuff. But he doesn't say, I'm going to do this one shot and you're dead. He keeps coming. But there's a point where even the Lord says, I'm done. I'm done with patience. I'm not going to give you any more time. So Jesus has tolerated this church for the sake of mercy, but he's also tolerated it for the sake of those who have not soiled their garments. That literally means to smear their clothes with filth. He sees them not as a, a, as a church, but as people who have smeared themselves with mud and manure. It's not accidental 
No one can say apostasy just kind of crept up on me and I didn't realize it was happening. Those who fall away from the faith fall away deliberately. Some are actually looking for an alternate. Some are simply apathetic toward the richness of the gospel. And they let it go. And they become vulnerable to false teachings. Many of which don't begin with some huge 90 degree departure. Many false teachings begin with a very subtle move. We have to stick with what we've been given. Those in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, who haven't smeared themselves with filth, have not apostatized. That means then, thinking about the letter, that that they don't need to wake up because they've been diligent. They've been vigilant. They've remained strong. They haven't lost most of what they have. They've remained focused on the gospel and the cross. They've faithfully kept the gospel and believed it for themselves and faithfully proclaimed it to others. They have kept themselves from straying, and so there's not a need to to repent because they've kept their eyes on the Lord. It's not that they're perfect. There's nothing that says that. In fact, we would know from Scripture that that's not true. They're not perfect. But what they are is humble and repentant. And when they begin to drift, they're quick to catch themselves. This is that third group of people that, when they hear this letter read, are probably almost weeping with relief. That Jesus knows that the preaching of the Word that has gone on has landed on their hearts and kept them strong and kept their eyes on the Lord. And this whole mass of people that have fallen into apostasy have been wrong. If you've ever been surrounded by a big group of people who are wrong, it's hard to stand against them when there's a big group. It's hard to stand when you're the only one or one of the few. It's hard to reason against it. That's why the word faith movement and so many other movements have have tens of millions, hundreds of millions of followers. It's because it sounds so easy, it sounds so comfortable, and when they drift from the gospel, people say, but this guy's got 20,000 people in his church, and this guy's got 30,000 people in his church, and this guy's got two airplanes now. Not just the one like he had before. They mistake success for blessing. And so this church, the, these, these few names, they don't have to fear Jesus coming as a thief. When he comes unexpectedly, it will be to take them home, not to take what they have. He'll come to them as he's promised. He'll give them even more because of the blessing of their faith. Jesus says he has found them worthy. It doesn't mean that they're worthy on their own. It doesn't mean that they're flawless people or, sin, or sinless people. It means that they've obeyed what he's wanting the church in Sardis to to obey. They've stayed focused on the gospel. They've kept the main thing, the main thing, as they say. It's God who makes us worthy of his calling. And he does so for his glory. Come then to the, the promise. Each one of these letters closes with a promise. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Holy Spirit says to the churches. (coughs) Now remember, there's three groups in Sardis. There is the faithful group, the few, just a few names. 
And then there's the big group that is apostatized. But that big group truly, truly breaks down into those who never were saved. And those who are saved but have been deceived and let out. And those people, as this letter is read, are grieving. They're mourning. Their hearts are breaking. They're repenting of their sin in their hearts. And they're saying, how could I miss it? How could I fall for that? How could I miss the centrality of the cross of Christ? I've repented of my sin, but but now what? Am I a second-class citizen in heaven? Everybody else gets white. Do, do, I get, do I get light gray? Do I get off-white? My daughter's wearing a white top. Aaron's wearing a, a white top. You ladies know Donna's wearing a white top. You ladies know what happens when you get something on there and then you wash it and you hold it up to the light and you can still see that little faint remnant of the stain. These people are saying, so you're going to wash me clean, but if you look at me just right, will I always have that stain? See, when Jesus says the one who conquers, he's not talking about the few who have been faithful. He's already said they'll be in white. He doesn't need to repeat it. He's talking to those who take this letter seriously and who wake up and strengthen what remains and and remember what they have received and heard and keep it and repent. He's talking about them. And he says, there's no difference between you in in your apostasy state if you'll repent and those who have never fallen away. There's zero difference. There is no difference. In eternity, there is no gold, silver, bronze medals. There's no second place. There's no consolation prizes. There's no blue ribbons and purple ribbons and and white ribbons. Those who come into eternity with Jesus Christ have the same blessing, the same life, the same eternal relationship with Christ. So Jesus is making another appeal to these people to say you don't need to fear coming back. You lose nothing coming back. He also says that their names will never be blotted out of the book of life. Now this is not a subtle warning. Oh, if you don't do this, your name will be blotted out. This is a loud promise Those of you who are concerned, those of you who have fallen away, those of you who look at your lives and and you're not always on target. You don't always stay within the lane that the Lord has prescribed in His Word. Am I going to come to a point where He's going to get tired of it and He's going to erase my name? And He says, I will never blot your name out of the book of life. If you've ever fallen into sin as a Christian, if you've ever found yourself in a season of forgetting the gospel and living for this life and and growing ever ever weaker, numb and, and just apathetic to your state, then you know what I'm talking about. You know that sense of, but what do I get now? I've been so unfaithful, I've I've fallen away so hard, so fast, I was given so much and I didn't keep it. I guess I lose. And Jesus says, you lose nothing when you come back. You gain everything when you come back. All the saints in Sardis, saints is not a special class of citizen. 
It's a born-again Christian in the Bible. All the saints will be dressed in white. They'll all be dressed in holiness and purity in the very character of Christ throughout eternity. All will be grateful for their salvation. No one is going to think that when they stand before the Lord, I deserve to be here. I earned this. This is my just reward. Just reward is hell. By the way, this is, this is free. Stop complaining about the world isn't fair or God isn't fair. There is no fairness. The world is unjust and God is just. That's why Jesus told the parable about the the landowner. He went out early in the morning to recruit workers and he said, I'll give you a full day's wage. And then he went out periodically through the day, even an hour before work was done and recruited workers. And when it came time to pay them, he began with those who had only worked an hour and he gave them a full day's wage. Now that first group, they thought, boy, if the guys only worked an hour got a full day's wage, we're really going to get rich. And they didn't. They got a full day's wage. That's another sermon. The point is, those who come to Christ in faith receive the fullness of His grace. He doesn't parcel it out. And so whether it's a Sardian Christian or a Norfolkian Christian or a Royalian Christian or a Plainviewing or a Hoskinian Christian who repents, Jesus brings us safely home. Dresses us in his own righteousness in, in white, and he says, I will proclaim your name, proclaim his name, confess his name before my Father and his angels. He's going to read that book. You're going to walk in, and he's going to find your name and read it out loud. And I, I think the significance of before the Father and His angels is that Jesus doesn't quietly come in, sneak around the wall, come to the throne, and whisper your name in the Father's ear. He walks in, slams the door open, and everybody there hears your name on the lips of the Savior. John Newton is the writer of the hymn Amazing Grace. He was a slave ship captain. He was a brutal man. He was a perverse man. He was such a wretch that he more than once despaired of his life and his soul, but he was saved by the grace of God. And he entered the ministry on his deathbed in London. A friend named William Jay visited him. Jay was a pastor in a town about 100 miles west. And as Newton lay on his deathbed, he looked up at Jay and he said, Although my memory is fading, I remember two things. I remember that I am a great sinner. And I remember that Christ is a great Savior. See, that's what I want. That's what I want. If God blesses me with the most of the genetics from my mom's side, I'll just keel over while I'm preaching one day. But if he blesses with me with the genetics from my dad's side, I'll slip slowly. And as long as I end with, I am a great sinner, but Jesus Christ is a great Savior, I'm okay with that. None of us can say anything but I'm a great sinner. But if you've never said Jesus Christ is a great Savior, then maybe today's the day. 
to turn away from the apostasy, to turn away from the faithlessness. If you've put your faith in Christ and you've pulled away from Him, you've slid away, there's nothing to fear coming back. There's everything to gain. Father, thank You for Your love for us. We thank You for the grace that You have poured out upon us. We thank You for the gift of Your Word and of Your Spirit. I ask, Lord, for each one here that we would all be gathered together on that day, joyfully crying out, Jesus Christ is a great Savior. And that's the only reason I am here. Thank you for that precious gift. Lord, if there are any here who have put their faith in you and then slipped away, I ask that you bring them back. And if there are any here who don't know you, would you open their eyes and their hearts to believe the gospel? That Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and he was raised for our justification. Through faith in Him, we have eternal peace with You. We thank You for this day, for the blessing of gathering together in Your name. And in Your name we pray. Amen.